I'm Jorge Salazar, reporting on SC16 in Salt Lake City, the 28th Annual International Conference for High-Performance Computing, Networking, Storage, and Analysis. The event showcases the latest in supercomputing to advance scientific discovery, research, education, and commerce. Today, we're joined on the podcast by John McAlpin, a research scientist at the Texas Advanced Computing Center and co-director of the Advanced Computing Evaluation Laboratory at TAC. 25 years ago, as an oceanographer at the University of Delaware, Dr. McAlpin developed the STREAM benchmark. It continues to be widely used today as a simple synthetic benchmark program that measures sustainable memory bandwidth and the corresponding computation rate for simple vector kernels. Dr. McAlpin was invited to speak at SC16. His talk is titled Memory Bandwidth and System Balance in HPC Systems. Dr. McAlpin, thank you for joining us today pleasure. Now, um, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do here at TAC? I wish I could tell you a little bit about what I do. I do a lot of uh, different work in the HPC group. TAC runs uh, about a dozen major supercomputers for research. We have five or six major groups within TAC. I'm in the HPC group. The HPC group even is split into a couple of areas. Uh, We have about uh, 19, I think, people in the group now. We attempt to help users use these uh, computational resources as effectively as possible. And my work is involved in several different pieces of that, in particular trying to use my experience from 12 years in industry where I worked in the processor and system design teams, trying to use that to help understand how modern processors are actually operating. Turns out that they're not documented in very much detail. And I use this to help us understand how the current systems are working, how applications are interacting with the hardware. I try to help the tool developers build tools to monitor the operation of the system so that we can identify poor use or opportunities for improved performance. Another piece of this is to actually pay attention to the performance-related characteristics of different application areas that are important parts of our workload so that we can use that when evaluating future technology proposals and uh, writing our own proposals to deploy new systems. Yeah, thanks for that overview. You're giving a presentation at... SE16, the Supercomputing Conference, and this focuses on memory bandwidth um, of supercomputers. In this context of high-performance computing systems, um, would you tell us what memory bandwidth is and why it's something that uh, you feel um, people need to be thinking about at SE16? Memory bandwidth at a high level is the rate at which a processor can move data to and from its main memory. The idea here is that we're dividing the time required to do a computation into a time for the arithmetic and a time for the data transfer. So I tend to think about performance of high-performance computing in these component-based models. And so at a fairly fine-grained level, you have processors that execute instructions, but they're also doing loads and stores that result in data motion to and from the memory of the processor. 25 years ago, in 1991, the industry uh, had been using 
primarily vector supercomputers, uh, which were institution-wide, multi-million dollar systems. In the early 1990s, several vendors came out with what were then referred to as killer micros. And these much less expensive processors had similar arithmetic computational capability compared to the supercomputers. And on some applications, they actually ran quite well compared to the supercomputers. On my applications, they ran very poorly compared to the supercomputers. And so I started to try to understand this. And the difference was related to memory bandwidth. One of the reasons that the killer micros were less expensive is they discarded the very expensive memory subsystem used on the vector supercomputers, replaced it with something much cheaper and much less capable. And my applications actually needed that high bandwidth capability. So in 1991, I developed the Stream Benchmark, which is a simple code originally in Fortran, but now mostly people use the version in C, that does uh, a several simple vector operations, uh, adding and multiplying together long vectors of numbers to measure the rate at which the processor can move data back and forth to memory. Over the past 25 years, there has been a substantially faster rate of increase of computational rate compared to memory bandwidth. And as a result, uh, systems have become increasingly unbalanced in that ratio so that more and more applications are becoming limited by the ability to transfer data rather than by the ability to do the requested computations. May I follow up on that? I mean, your applications um, 25 years ago that you were having trouble with, the killer micros, were these related to your field of study oceanography? And if so, um, it's interesting that the benchmark that you developed is called Stream. Um, I'm not sure that I remember a lot of my thinking about the name of the benchmark, although streaming is a concept that was already in use, the ideas that you're accessing contiguous adjacent memory locations in a long stream. So, And it, and it certainly did fit with my work. At the time, I was uh, an assistant professor of oceanography at the University of Delaware doing large-scale ocean simulations. Turns out that the performance properties of those applications have not really changed very much in 25 years. They're defined in part by the partial differential equations and the numerical methods used to solve those partial differential equations. There are, over the decades, uh, computational fluid dynamics in general has been an area that has been more sensitive to memory bandwidth requirements than some of the other areas. Uh, and that's one of the things that I tracked both in my industrial career and in my job here at TAC. Dr. McAlpin, would you uh, maybe walk us through some of the history of supercomputers that you have found has not kept up with what everybody refers to as Moore's Law? Why hasn't memory bandwidth kept up with Moore's Law? There are a bunch of reasons, some of them technical, some of them economic, some of them sort of sociological. The big changes in the industry that have occurred have occurred because of disruptive technologies, technologies that are available at a dramatically lower price point and yet provide a, a, a pretty big fraction of the performance of the incumbent technology. And I already alluded to one of these. If you look at the HPC market uh, breakdown, 
up to the early 1990s, it was still dominated by the vector supercomputers, which were institution-wide, multi-million dollar systems. In the early 1990s, the killer micros, which started off at roughly 120th the price per processor, became available. Initially, they were hard to use, but the more people thought about them and uh, the, the more clever they uh, were able to devise solutions. And by the mid-1990s, they had pretty much completely displaced the uh, vector supercomputers in the major supercomputing installations around the world. That continued through the early 2000s, and it was then that there was another significant disruption which was the transition from the RISC-based microprocessors to the x86-based microprocessors. Uh, it, this began with the 32-bit Intel processors in a, in a few select systems, but was really accelerated by the introduction of the 64-bit AMD Opteron processors in 2003-2004. And by 2005-2006, these clusters of x86-based 64-bit processors really dominated the supercomputing landscape and have continued to dominate since then. Moore's law involved uh, several things. Moore's law is the statement that transistors per chip double every 18 months, two years, whichever version you're using. Associated with that is Denard scaling, which says that these smaller transistors also operate at higher frequency. So you get more transistors and they run faster. Uh, this is all wonderful. There are difficulties when you go to leave the chip, however. Frequencies that you can run external pins have not been increasing as fast as the ability to run the transistors within the chip and the ability to make wider interfaces using more pins for parallelism has also been slow to increase so that in a large scale, uh, in recent years, you could say that the peak performance per chip has been increasing at 50 to 60% per year, while the memory bandwidth available for that chip has been increasing at 20 to 25% per year. And since these are exponential trends that compound year on year on year, you end up with a very large change in the balance of uh, processors over a five-year, 10-year period. How did you come up with these results? Where did the data come from? The data comes from many places. I have collected data since 1991 for the stream benchmark. Uh, we have about 1,000, almost 1,100 results uh, currently in the database. Many of them are interesting scaling studies for particular architectures. Uh, now that we're in a, in a world in which most systems are built using Intel processors, uh, you don't need to test everybody's Xeon E5 2690V3 because they're mostly the same. I also did spend uh, 12 years working inside the design teams at SGI, IBM, and AMD and learned a lot about the low-level technology. There's also a great deal of data available in the semiconductor market outlooks and forecasts that uh, talk about the low-level details of signaling memory frequency. And uh, what I enjoy doing is researching these topics from many, many different directions and then synthesizing uh, and understanding uh, from lots of different sources. 
Why um, has this problem of memory bandwidth been so hard for computer architects that work on these supercomputers? Why has it been so hard for them to fully um, deal with? There are a couple of problems. One is that the technology just naturally improves at different rates for different performance parameters. One of the performance parameters that has been particularly problematic is memory latency. The time required to load data from main memory if the processor is not able to prefetch it. it. It did not expect to load that address. Turns out that memory latency is effectively unchanged over the past decade. One of the basic results of queuing theory is that if the latency is the same and the bandwidth goes up, that means you have to have more and more transactions taking place concurrently in order to uh, fill uh, the pipeline in order to tolerate that latency. And that's an extremely difficult problem to solve. In 1990, when the first of the killer micros came out, if you simply stalled the processor every time you missed in the cache, you could still get half of the bandwidth. Uh, now, in a modern system, you need approximately 100 cache lines uh, in flight at all times if you want to maintain the, the full bandwidth of the memory that's attached to that processor. And the microprocessors were not really designed to be able to control hundreds of outstanding cache misses. Uh, they, they actually can't even see cache misses. They're based on the idea that you execute a load instruction and the data eventually shows up. And this was a reasonable architectural decision 25, 30 years ago, uh, but doesn't seem like an appropriate place to start now. If one of the most costly things that you could do is fetch data from memory, then that's not something that should be made invisible. That's something that should be made explicit and more strongly under the control of the programmer. Another important piece is early on in the RISC microprocessors, the killer micros, some application areas were able to use these cache-based systems very effectively uh, and deliver very high performance early on. In other areas, the initial reaction was, oh, we can't do this. Uh, caches are hard. We, we don't want to try to use them. Uh, but in area after area, uh, as time passed, people thought about it more and were able to modify their algorithms, modify their uh, implementations, and get good performance out of uh, cache memories. Over time, the caches have, in some ways, become larger. Uh, the automatic hardware prefetching mechanisms have become much more sophisticated. And also, over time, there is a tendency for applications to become more computationally intense. When I was uh, doing ocean modeling, I was often working in hypothetical rectangular oceans with flat bottoms. We've sort of finished doing that a long time ago. And as you move forward, you do more and more complex studies, typically with more complex physics. There's more arithmetic, uh, more logical decision-making in the codes. And so there is a tendency for them to become slightly more computationally intense over time. So if you're a designer, an architect, designing systems, and you see that adding more compute capability will help some applications, 
it won't help others, you probably add it because it will help some. And there's uh, extremely expensive and a little risky to try to bifurcate your implementation to different balance points. Trying to design a high bandwidth system and a low bandwidth system is a good way to go out of business. And so what you do is you improve the parts that you can improve, even if it seems unbalanced, because some of your users will get benefit from it. May I follow up on that? I mean, one of the, I guess one of the examples that I think that you brought up to where this is making a difference is in the, in the weather model. In 1997, I did a fairly large survey of the performance characteristics of economically important applications in HPC. This was when I was working for SGI. One of the codes that we looked at was MM5, a local area weather code, which is some sense a precursor to WARF, the uh, most popular regional uh, weather code used now. And in 1997, MM5 was very strongly compute-dominated on the SGI Origin 2000 systems that we had for testing, to the extent that it was maybe 85% of the cycles were related to compute and 15% for data transfer. In 2007, while I was working for AMD, I went back and reviewed some models of the performance of the current version of WARF and found that on a dual-core Opteron system, it was spending about 70% of the cycles doing compute and about 30% doing data transfers uh, to and from memory. So it was still considered to be on the compute-intensive side of the scale. Uh, in the last year, we did experiments on new uh, Xeon E5 V3 12-core processors and found that those ratios have basically flipped that WARF is now spending about 30% of its time in compute cycles and about 70% of its time in memory transfer. So this is a case where we've had a pretty clear shift of a compute-intensive workload to a bandwidth-limited workload. Perhaps one of the um, stumbling blocks to the exascale, this memory bandwidth, um, what are some examples of systems that are leading the way to the exascale? This is an interesting topic because there are so many different ways to approach it. Memory bandwidth is not expensive in the basic physics level, moderately expensive. It's not insanely expensive. One of the things that makes memory bandwidth expensive is the current approach of building what I call megachips uh, with as many processors as you can throw on there and then cram as many uh, memory channels as you can throw on there. But what we're missing, uh, and one of the things that's been critical for the incredible rates of increase of performance has been these underlying technology changes. And right now, we don't see a technology change that will enable us to get an order of magnitude or more reduction in the price per node, for example. Uh, without that, it's going to be very challenging to get to exascale. The current proposals are mostly based around building extremely unbalanced systems with extremely high computational rates compared to their available bandwidth. And 
there are certainly applications that can make use of such systems, but it's not a whole lot of applications. The more unbalanced you get, the fewer applications will map to it effectively. So, for example, the DOE, Summit, and Sierra systems look to have a balance which is more compute intensive than uh, our current supercomputers. They would be appropriate for some parts of our workloads, but certainly not for all of it. There are probably not going to be exascale systems that are targeting the sort of traditional one byte per flop of memory bandwidth, partly for cost reasons and partly for energy reasons. If you wanted to build a system that uh, was able to sustain an exabyte per second for an exaflop of processing, it would take... Uh, something like 80 megawatts just to drive the memory traffic from one set of chips to another, which is beyond what's plausible at the current time. There are some technologies to bring that down, but first we need to deal with the price issue because if we stick with the current model of one or two socket clusters based on high-end x86 processors, we're not going to have the reduction in price that's needed to put together enough nodes to deliver performance at these scales. What's the most important thing you want people to know about memory bandwidth? The most important thing for an application-oriented scientist or developer to understand is whether or not their workloads are memory bandwidth intensive or not. It turns out that this is not as obvious as one might think. I've, in my industrial career, I certainly ran across many customers who were convinced that their workloads required high bandwidth when, in fact, they didn't. And due to the complexity of the systems, difficulties in understanding hardware performance counters, these can be tricky issues to understand. If you are in a safe, high computational intensity area, then you can ignore this talk. If you are in an area that tends to use high bandwidth, you can get some advantage from system configuration options. It's fairly easy to show, for example, that uh, if you're running medium to high bandwidth codes, you don't want to buy the maximum number of cores and the maximum frequency in the processors because those parts carry quite a premium uh, and, and don't deliver any more bandwidth than the less expensive processor. So you can sometimes get a 20-30% improvement in price performance through configuration options. You can sometimes get additional improvements through algorithmic changes, which in some sense don't look optimal because they involve more arithmetic. But if they don't involve more memory traffic, the arithmetic may be very close to free. And so you may be able to get an improved quality of solution through that. In the long run, if you need orders of magnitude more bandwidth than is currently available, uh, there's a set of technologies that are sometimes referred to as processor in-memory or near-memory processing. I call it processor at-memory technologies that involves cheaper processors distributed out to the memory, to being adjacent to the memory chips. These processors are cheaper, simpler, lower power, and that could allow 
a significant reduction in the cost to build the systems, which allows you to build them a lot bigger and therefore deliver significantly higher aggregate memory bandwidth. But that's a, a very revolutionary change and uh, it's very difficult to predict the timing of revolutions. You've been listening to John McAlpin of the Texas Advanced Computing Center from SC, the International Conference for High Performance Computing, Networking, Storage, and Analysis. I'm Jorge Salazar.